0: Before we begin, I have an announcement to make regarding the future of this podcast. Beginning February 1st, the Grant Williams podcast will become part of the Copper membership tier of my new website, grant-williams.com. Now, the Copper tier will include every future episode of The Endgame, the super terrific happy hour and the narrative game, as well as access to a series of special one-on-one conversations I'll be having with a group of truly extraordinary people throughout the rest of this year, beginning with my dear friend and mentor. Anthony Deedon of Edelweiss Holdings. At the site, you'll also find a silver tier, which in addition to access to the Grant Williams podcast, will include a year's subscription to my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. But you can find out a lot more about all that by visiting grant-williams.com. And now, on with the show. Something that's fascinated me over the last 12 months has been how keen people are to hear my views on cryptocurrencies in general, and Bitcoin in particular. I've tried to lay out my position as clearly as I can over that year, and I'll do the same again here. I understand the bull case for crypto very, very well. In many ways, it's a similar case to the one I've been making myself over the years for gold. Because of that, I've been predisposed to be bullish on Bitcoin. But... Like anything I come across that looks interesting, I maintain what I view as a healthy level of scepticism until I've had any fears allayed. As far as Bitcoin goes, I'm just not quite there yet. There are things which concern me about its long-term viability, and so until I can have those questions answered to my satisfaction, Bitcoin, to me, remains a highly speculative asset. The difficulty I've found in getting my questions answered stems largely from the binary opinion set I've found wherever I've searched for those answers. Bitcoin, it seems, is either going to eat the world or it's a complete Ponzi scheme. And finding a space between those two opinions where my possible answers might lie has proven very difficult for me. Last week, an extremely negative article about Tether, the supposedly dollar-backed stablecoin, did the rounds. And from the commentary and discussion around that article, the idea of a debate rose organically on FinTwit, a debate that I was asked to moderate. Needless to say, in my own search for answers to my questions, I was happy to oblige, and so here we are. Joining me today are Mike Green of Logica Funds, a man with a towering intellect and a decidedly negative view of Bitcoin, and Tether for that matter, and Nick Carter, co-founder of Castle Island Ventures and Coinmetrics, and another man in possession of some serious intellectual firepower, but who sees Bitcoin in a completely different and extremely positive light? The idea here is to offer both sides of the Bitcoin debate a chance to speak and engage respectfully with the other in the hopes of providing anybody listening with something to either challenge their own assumptions, answer nagging questions they may have, or simply provide them with some good old-fashioned confirmation bias. The goal isn't to change anybody's mind about Bitcoin, although who knows, maybe that can actually happen in either direction, but rather to have a thoughtful, respectful conversation about what is, no matter which side of the debate you find yourself on, the hottest topic in finance right now. So let's get to it. My conversation with Mike Green and Nick Carter. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to this special podcast that um, kind of arose organically. And I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that the two of you were willing to take the time to come on and talk about this, because there's been so much said and written um, about Bitcoin, obviously on both sides. And, and right at the top of the show, I'm going to position myself um, and explain to everybody where I am, because I think that's important for the guy in the middle to understand. Uh, I am, I, I like to refer myself as a, as, as a bit skeptic. Um, I understand the potential promise of Bitcoin. I've heard some uh, very smart people say very smart things about it, a lot of which uh, resonates with me from my time in the precious metal space. But I have questions that I just don't really... There are things that just don't quite click with me. There are problems that I worry about. And, and what I've found when I've been on the fringes of this space is that it's difficult to get thoughtful, considered answers that particularly on Twitter, uh, thoughtful, considered answers that don't just degenerate very quickly into a slanging match from both sides. So to have two thoughtful guys like you join me on the podcast is um, is, a, is a real treat for me. So thank you both for doing that. Um, what we're going to do, I think, is start talking uh, about Bitcoin. Um, and then as part of the conversation, I want to discuss, however briefly or however lo- uh, long it takes, the recent uh, Tether piece, the Doomsday uh, piece, which uh, got everybody in a flap a few days ago. So I think um, what I might do is start with you, Nick, uh, and, and just to give us um, really your kind of introduction to Bitcoin um, and your thoughts on on what it is and what it potentially could be, and and perhaps any of the things that... that that trouble you about it? If there is anything, in fact,
1: sure, yeah, and thanks so much for moderating, Grant. Um, big fan of your show, and and Mike, thanks for uh, agreeing to the debate as well. I'm really excited to talk with you. I'm a fan of yours as well. So, from my perspective, like I've I've been sort of professionally involved in Bitcoin um, probably since about t- 2017. It was when I I joined Fidelity as their Bitcoin analyst, right? Um, so I was probably one of the first folks on Wall Street to sort of be a dedicated Bitcoin guy. Um, prior to that, I was just an enthusiast, right? I was an amateur Bitcoiner. I mean, there wasn't really a crypto industry before that, right? And now, you know, my current affiliation is partner at a venture fund, and we invest in startups building on public blockchains. So I certainly believe in this stuff, you know, put my, my capital to work. Uh, and I, I believe in the vision of the future that includes cryptocurrencies. So, you know, the way I see Bitcoin is it's kind of two things in one. It is a protocol for sending value through communications medium and encoding value in information. And it's also an asset. It's a monetary asset and I would compare it to a commodity. So I'd say it's a non-state monetary commodity. It's something that stores value over time and space and it's an independent system of property rights or rather it It proposes a state-independent system of property rights. So you don't need an established legal system or a police force or a state to enforce the rights. The rights are enforced through cryptography. And so in that respect, it's sort of contextually important. So in some cases where you have a functioning financial system, functioning legal system, and there's no risk of expropriation, you have no need for Bitcoin, right? So in the US, that would characterize most people. They're puzzled by it. They don't really see the need for a Bitcoin because everything works great here, for now at least. In other countries where property rights are not really respected, and you have inflation or devaluations, or just simply, you know, people's funds and bank accounts get seized uh, on a frequent basis, then maybe there is more of a need for a non-state system. So those are the countries where we're seeing some adoption of Bitcoin. You also see plenty of Americans getting exposure to it. Um, maybe in anticipation of a future time when it becomes super relevant, or just uh, out of speculative mania, too. Uh, but, you know, quite briefly, that's how I see it. I think it's important for there to be non state monetary technologies. I think Bitcoin is extremely promising and it improves upon gold in some really critical respects, particularly along the domain of auditability, verifiability, and taking physical settlement. Which is where I think it really improves upon gold. Um, but I think if you are positively disposed towards gold, you should probably take a look at Bitcoin, because it's you know really similar in some of its critical features. Although, of course, you know not not the same thing by any means. Um, so that's that's my sort of very very short description of Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, you know it's really interesting, and I think my my time spent in the precious metal space. When my, I was originally exposed to Bitcoin, I saw the similarities between the Bitcoin proposition as it was then and and the things that Gold does. I, I definitely have a few questions about those those supposed improvements upon Gold, which which I, we'll get into later on. But but I want I want to turn it over to Mike. Um, Mike, just uh, if you can, your because obviously your your view on Bitcoin is 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 the polar opposite to Nick's, and so I'm I'm, I'm curious to get an overview. Of, the, of that and the things that, that concern you the most? And then we can perhaps dive into some of these things.
2: So it, it, it's interesting because I actually don't think that we are necessarily polar opposites. I think that we, are, uh, we have very strongly divergent opinions in terms of the value of it. Um, so my introduction to Bitcoin happened back in 2012. Uh, my wife likes to point out that she uh, expressed interest in buying it at $25.00. And wanted to put $10,000 in. And I said, well, why don't we actually put money in that matters and so do 100000 And she, uh, she, of course, was, uh, said, that's far too much and uh, did nothing with it, right? Now, my view on Bitcoin for a very long time was get yourself to neutral. Own enough that it's not going to make you crazy rich and own enough that you're not sitting there with an incredible amount of FOMO as you watch others get rich around you. I changed that view in 2020 for a a very, very simple reason, which is as I began to see the dynamic of Americans express the view that Bitcoin was the solution to an overly aggressive central bank, it became very important and that it was the replacement for gold as Nick suggested. It became very important for me to actually understand on a professional basis what was behind the Bitcoin Bitcoin phenomena, and how I thought about it in the context of our portfolios at Logica, where we do own gold. We own gold as part of a macro overlay, and we view it as an asset that has interesting, effectively um, orthogonal behavior to other risk assets. So as I began to dig back into it in a professional capacity, it actually became very clear to me that I share Nick's view, that it is close to a commodity, it's a unique type of commodity. It's the first commodity that is produced with only electricity. And so while you would think of aluminum, for example, as being produced by the combination of electricity and bauxite, Bitcoin functionally just dispenses with the bauxite and produces a product that can either be stored and it's commonly referred to as digital gold, or it can be sold for US dollars. And as I dug into the dynamics of that, it actually became very clear to me that the reason why it was valuable was precisely because of that feature. That you, if you took a, uh, if you took a, a process and you used only domestic energy, for example, domestic coal, solar, nuclear, et cetera, then a state actor was functionally printing their own currency to get U.S. dollars. And to me, that broadly explains the Bitcoin phenomenon. It explains why we have the large state actors that are currently playing in China, Russia, and Iran as the dominant forces, Kazakhstan, you can add there as well, as the dominant forces within the Bitcoin universe, that it is functionally an asset that is only superior for criminals.
0: So, so let's talk about that, because this is one of those narratives that gets thrown out and, and, and kind of laughed off all too quickly, right? Someone says, oh, this is, you know, Madame Lagarde said it recently and Janet Yellen said it recently. And they talk about this thing about being, you know, Bitcoin's used for drug deals and money laundering. Obviously, neither of them mentioning that there are more euros and dollars used for those two things than anything else on the planet, but that's besides the point. But, that, but th- this idea that uh, it, it, Bitcoin is, is a tool for criminals is something that's kind of thrown around by both sides um, and batted back um, but but, Mike, just expand on that a little bit, because it's it's knowing you as I do, something like that is not a flip comment coming from you. This is something that you've thought more deeply about. So just perhaps you can expand on that for me.
2: Sure. So, so part of it is actually deeply understanding gold, right, and why gold played a role in the monetary system. And you and I have been through this underlying dynamic. Gold is not money. Gold fits a physical parameter that was necessary for coinage 5,000 years ago, in particular large format. If you think about the dynamics of what are necessary, and I talked through this on a podcast with John Katsomita, but just to run through it, you know, ultimately 5,000 years ago, you needed to have controls against counterfeiting, which would require a level of purity. So you're locked into the elements on the periodic table. It's very difficult to assess purity in the context of an alloy. And then you start adding the additional features that are required. Solid at room temperature, non-radioactive, non-corrosive, and non-toxic. Importantly, it needed to be malleable at temperatures that could be achieved 5,000 years ago. And by the time you're through with all that, you're left with five metals. You're left with nickel, copper, zinc, silver, and gold. And then scarcity becomes a question as you start thinking about large format, and you're thinking about large format wealth storage. In particular, you need something that is relatively scarce. It can't be unobtainable, but it needs to be relatively scarce. It leaves you with silver and gold. And gold has the unique property, that one it's more rare than silver. And second, it doesn't oxidize or tarnish. So it became the preferred vehicle. It wasn't because of anything special about gold. It was simply element 79 on the periodic table. The other dynamic, though, that actually retains value for gold is where you discover that Bitcoin is actually an inferior asset. Because when you think about a commodity, a commodity has a unique attribute to it. Once I deliver it to you, my obligation ceases. If I give you a ton of wheat, I've completed my obligation. There is no further requirement for that matter for anybody to perform something for that to have value to you. Likewise, a ton of steel. If I deliver an ounce of gold to you, every obligation has been fulfilled. You may have to negotiate what it can be sold for, what it can be traded for in the future. But nobody has an obligation or liability outstanding to you. And this is where ultimately Bitcoin fails, because somebody has to keep the lights on. Somebody has to keep the internet running. Somebody has to keep the network running. And as a result, it fails that test of lacking liability. It requires somebody to keep those on. And as a result, it is only valuable to those who are actually looking to do one thing in particular, Work against the state. That's that's what terrorists do. They assume that the network is running. They assume that the lights are on, and they're working against it. That can be the state of China. That can be the state of Russia. That could be a significant terrorist group. And again, that's where we see the mining activity. That's where we see the transactions.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Nick. I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you in on this one because I, I want to get your your thoughts on this because. Uh, that, that's one of the things, um, you know, at the top of the show when I talked about some of the things that concerned me about Bitcoin, one of them was not not for, for Mike's um, particular angle on it, but this necessity for there to be functionality and other things in order for Bitcoin to have its value and preserve its value uh, and be transferable was one of the kind of bugbears that I had with the system. So so given what Mike said and and understanding where I am on the thing, I'd love to get your thoughts on on, on what Mike just said then.
1: Yeah, so I guess there's like two big points to address. The first one being that uh, Bitcoin is ostensibly only for criminals. And I guess the other one, which I'll start with, would be Bitcoin as possessing some kind of liability because it depends on the internet. So I'll start with the latter. Um, So... I agree that gold transactions are final in a very kind of physical laws of physics type way, and certainly that gives Bitcoin or gold strength relative to Bitcoin in certain apocalyptic situations where the internet no longer exists. Uh, the thing, the ways that Bitcoin improves upon gold are because it's dematerialized, because it doesn't have that physical presence, and so it's much more portable sort of infinitely portable and it's much more verifiable than gold if i want to verify an inbound gold transaction that i'm receiving outside the aegis of you know something like the LBMA i need an xrf spectrometer I need to inspect the atoms in that gold to ensure that there's not tungsten filling in the gold bar, right? That's kind of difficult, you know, and, and so that's why you see gold ending up in these walled gardens because the cost of verification is pretty high, and so it's easier to simply authenticate every link in the supply chain and make sure that gold is just circulating between these trusted intermediaries. Uh, whereas with Bitcoin, the way to verify it is simply by running a full node. Running a full node is something you can do on your laptop. It's about 300 gigabytes. That's the entire size of the ledger. That contains every transaction ever made with Bitcoin, about 500 million transactions. And you, the way you do it is you just simply replay the whole history of the transactions and you make sure that the Bitcoin payment you're receiving is sort of included in there and it follows the valid protocol rules. Now you can run a node for you know, $10 a month. Uh, so that's much much cheaper and much more accessible to really anyone on earth uh, than than verifying an inbound gold transaction so there's a trade-off right the trade-off is you're dematerializing something so you lose those really hard sort of laws of physics boundaries but you gain you know this you gain this crucial right to be able to verify a transaction and to take physical delivery and then to transport that asset with you anywhere. You know, Bitcoin can be stored in a 12-word phrase. Store it in your brain. If you're a refugee, you can take that across borders. You don't even need to bring anything with you. All you need is a memory. So that is the flip side of the you know, fact that Bitcoin is not material. It's that you gain these great advantages over gold. But I would say, you know, certainly part of the appeal for gold is in a truly apocalyptic situation where the grid is down. Nothing else works. Commerce doesn't work. But I'm not exactly planning for a situation where the internet ceases to exist. There's not that many scenarios that I'm envisioning where the internet has sort of popped out of existence and we go back to an analog world. I mean, maybe there's like a tiny part of the tail risk that... um, (laughs) involves the internet ceasing to exist. But you know, more realistically, I'm planning for situations where, for instance, we have high inflation or we have a devaluation. The world looks much as it does. It's just that we're dealing with monetary repression. And in that case, I think Bitcoin is a perfectly suitable asset. Uh, so, you know, I, I think if you're if your case that you're planning for is one where the internet has gone down, yeah, sure, Bitcoin's not going to be suitable. But at that point, we're dealing with a truly apocalyptic situation, and that's not, you know, a big percentage of the futures that I expect here. Uh, so, I, it's, it's yeah,
2: it's interesting that you focus on that, though, because if you think about the dynamics of keeping the lights on, keeping the power on, keeping the system functioning, ultimately, that is dependent upon the state itself. The state employs the police. The state employs the security facilities. The state keeps the enemies from disrupting those networks. And yet what you're encouraging is actually depriving the state of the flexibility of financing itself by opting outside of the system. Functionally, you're declaring that because you disagree with the policy of the U.S. government or whatever government you happen to be a part of, that that entitles you to take your money off because you'd like to have non-state money.
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely my right to store value outside the purview of the state if I'm expecting a devaluation. I don't see why I have a moral obligation to stomach that. That's what everybody does in terms of asset allocation. They try and construct a portfolio such that they're insulated from the vicissitudes of the future, whatever the cause may be, market turmoil or state action. So I'm not going to sit here and stomach that loss if I can avoid it. Now, that doesn't mean engaging in tax evasion. That means engaging in the perfectly legal process of simply buying Bitcoin or buying gold, for that matter. I like gold too, <laughs> you know. So I and I would also contest the uh, the assumption that the internet is, you know, solely um, uh, you know creation of the state. I know certainly, you know, DARPA kind of emerged from the U.S. government and so on. But the inter- internet infrastructure is created by private companies. We have private companies putting satellites up now. You know, the internet is a, is a free market phenomenon. Um, certainly, the power grid is something that the government, you know, helps administer. But I don't necessarily uh, see the connection between monetary policy and core uh, internet infrastructure. And certainly, I think the state can continue to finance itself. Uh, without having complete monetary discretion, that's how things used to work. Uh, you know the notion of a pure fiat currency is a relatively new idea that's only been around for the last fifty years or so. So the internet ran just fine before we had this fiat standard and it'll run just fine after it too
0: let let, let me let me jump in because this is this is one of the things that I Struggle with when trying to, to get my head around around Bitcoin, particularly versus gold, and that's this idea that that Mike brought up in a, in a slightly circular way. But this idea that the state ultimately does control uh, access to Bitcoin, and and, it, and that vulnerability is something, to me at least, the Bitcoin proponents will tell you that it's it's outside, it's too big, the state can't do anything about it, they can't disrupt it. But as we've as we've seen in in various news stories that flash across the wires and affect the price at any given time, the idea of being able to control the on ramps and off ramps is is an important one. Uh, and to Mike's point, uh, the state allowing people to switch out their currency in which they tax the citizens of that country for something outside the system, you know, I would argue. Uh, and this is one of my big concerns, is that, that that ultimately, we're not there yet, but at some point, that cannot be allowed to exist. Uh, at, at some point, Bitcoin becomes a threat to the taxation powers of a government somewhere. And it becomes a problem that not only can they not allow it to exist, but through the things we've been talking about already, they have a fairly straightforward means of of stopping it,
1: Nick. Well, the, the first regulatory uh, body within the U.S., I think, to grapple with Bitcoin was the IRS, which is maybe not a surprise, uh, maybe yeah, behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly right. But So they treat it as property, which is what it is. Um, and you pay capital gains when you sell your Bitcoin. Uh, so they already devised their Bitcoin But But that's policy. for now.
0: That's that's where they are for now, right? I mean, it's, because, because to my point, it's not a threat just yet.
1: Well, it may well be a threat, but it's a very popular product that tens of millions of Americans use. There's senators like Cynthia Lummis that are Bitcoiners. There's a dozen or so representatives that count themselves as allies of Bitcoin. You got the new head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, who taught a class on crypto at MIT. You know, the putative head of the CFTC, Chris Brummer, uh, wrote a book on crypto assets, you know, so... It's. I think it's a little odd to assume that the state would take this incredibly adversarial stance towards Bitcoin when it actually is very much an American industry. You've got companies like Coinbase that are going to be IPOing uh, relatively soon. Here, uh, you know, you literally hundreds of billions, most likely, of Bitcoin are custodied in the USA. So it's quite an American industry, the same way that a large portion of the world's financial gold. Uh, is stored here in the US, and nobody really thinks that the government is about to impose incredibly onerous tax rates on gold. So I would find it very curious if Bitcoin were singled out. I mean, gold is still many times larger than Bitcoin, and gold is certainly an asset that people use to escape monetary repression uh, when it emerges. Now, you might you know, harken back to 1933 and say, Well, listen, the last time the government needed to control the yield curve and uh, impose high inflation and so on, at that point, gold was banned. So, you know, private ownership of gold was banned, Order 6102. So, why wouldn't they do the same thing again? And uh, I think my answer would be that the executive doesn't have the power that they had back then. You know, in, in the 30s, FDR had pretty unilateral power. And he was the closest thing we've had to a dictator in the history of this country. Now, today, it's a little bit different. Uh, the executive doesn't have that power. We're not dealing with a crisis like the Great Depression or World War II. I don't necessarily see you know the citizens of this country rolling over and accepting that. I don't see the moral mandate exactly. So. I think it would be incredibly unlikely for the government to effectively expropriate the savings of tens of millions of its of its um citizens at this point. Um so yeah, I think Bitcoin at this point has achieved critical mass, which would make it politically incredibly difficult uh to, you know, illegalize it either de jure or or de facto.
2: So is is is, is your assessment of the nineteen thirties that it was a period of high inflation?
1: No, the forties. But i'm saying
2: that the 40s were a period of high inflation
1: that's not true there certainly was significant inflation in the 40s
2: what was the level of inflation in the 1940s it was like high high single digits it was low single digits on average throughout that time period it spiked
1: up to levels that would be considered you know significantly inflationary today
0: I think three percent is because of inflation today—that's the that's the world we've built for ourselves. The point but, is but,
1: that inflation was significantly higher than interest rates in the '40s, and that allowed the government to soft default on its debt and reduce its its sort of debt to GDP ratio.
2: So that's actually an a-historical take, right? It was not a function of the difference between inflation and interest rates. It was a function of an expansion of the productivity of the United States. We radically increased the number of people working in our economy. The labor force over the course of the 1930s into the 1940s had expanded by about 35%, even though the economy had not grown significantly. That created tremendous resources that could be deployed once the soldiers returned from war. The innovations and and technological uh, innovations that occurred in the course of the wartime period created the basis for dramatic growth. And what you actually had was real GDP expansion leading to diminishment of the debt levels. It had nothing to do with financial repression.
1: Do you disagree that inflation ran significantly higher than interest rates in the 1940s after the war?
2: I agree that it ran modestly higher. When you say significantly, I encourage you to think that we're talking low single-digit differences.
1: Regardless. I mean, like a lot of us... Well,
2: wait, you can't say regardless to that. You've, You've made an assertion that inflation was used to eliminate the debt load. And that's just not true.
1: It certainly helped. It absolutely helped.
2: I mean, well, Mike, I'm mean, not going to pull up Mike, charts
1: right now during the interview, but yeah, right. like feel Mike, free to refer to the chart. Mike, let's
0: get let's get back to the the the, the point that, that we're discussing, which is this idea about um, crypto being at, at some point a threat to to government taxation powers. At some point, becoming enough of a threat that it 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 becomes something that that the government cannot allow to coexist alongside its own. Uh, power of, of coinage. What are your thoughts on that?
2: So I, I would suggest that if that were to ever get to that point, I agree with you that it would become a critical issue. My concern is is that it represents a threat already, not because of the potential to replace U.S. taxation, although I find it concerning that an increasing number of Americans are being encouraged to decide that their decision about policy overrides the overall policy uh, objectives of the state, I would suggest that that's a a very frightening development that we've effectively robbed ourselves of any sense of unity or alignment behind our leadership. The second thing that I would highlight though, is, is that if we look at the scale of Bitcoin and we look at the operations that are underway, it is already being used to an extraordinary degree to provide hard currency to those that are aligned against us on the global stage. So China, Russia, and Iran are all using Bitcoin as a tremendous resource for obtaining U.S. dollars.
0: So, yeah, Mike, I mean, I, I, you and I have spoken about this, uh, and I've listened to you talk about it, and, I, and I've seen some of the work you've done. Just, just flesh that out for us, because it, it is interesting, and, it, and it's one of the things that you've kind of alluded to, but I, th- I think it probably w- w- would be good for a lot of people to listen to you talk about that as, to, as best you can.
2: Sure. So when we look at countries like Iran or we look at countries like Russia or we look at countries like China, they all, if they want to purchase goods from abroad, need hard currency. Ultimately, the Russian rule is only useful when transitioned to the U.S. dollar. The Chinese yuan is only useful when transitioned to the U.S. dollar, with the exception of of the decision to trade with other countries like Iran and Russia, who likewise are short U.S. dollars. Bitcoin is turning into a major source of those dollars. And that feels difficult for people to understand because they see the large trade surplus that China will run with the United States, for example. But what that fails to consider is the extraordinarily low value added component of that. So the statistic is fairly typically given that China collects somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five percent of the value of an iPhone. Right. So 40 bucks off of a twelve hundred dollar phone that low level of value added means that trade surplus really doesn't create that much cash for them, that much USD. What they're actually doing is buying a lot of commodities and paying a lot for the intellectual property that's coming from the United States or coming from Taiwan, which is an important consideration. And they're effectively processing that at very, very low value added. A product like Bitcoin or a product like fentanyl actually has a remarkably high value added content and therefore can be a tremendous addition in terms of the actual hard dollars, USD, that it received relative to the effort that's put out. Bitcoin would be the poster child for that. Again, because all you're doing is putting electricity into a process and you're receiving a saleable commodity, what you can do is you can simply steal from the resources of your own population. You can use underpaid labor to extract those resources in the form of lignite coal or to build solar facilities or whatever, effectively you're just stealing from your own country and printing your own currency to generate US dollars. It's an end run around any form of sanctions and control. And individuals that are actively involved in Bitcoin are facilitating that by providing those dollars.
1: So I I have a question for Mike though. So, I mean, China exports, what's What's China's kind of trade surplus, like five hundred billion plus dollars a year? China you know collects u s dollars with the
2: u s with the with the u s they run trade deficits with the rest of the world.
1: so China collects dollars by selling products to Americans how is let's say the state was mining bitcoin, which is not exactly the case it's It's private entities, but let's say they were. How is that any different from just Chinese firms exporting any other good or service to the u s What's the difference
2: there? Ultimately, I would suggest that there are two components to it. Again, when they ship us baseball caps, they are not simultaneously shipping us baseball caps and saying, you're receiving these baseball caps because of the collapse of the U.S. dollar. Right? The second component, as I said, is of that $500 billion trade surplus that they run with the United States... They have to run massive trade deficits with the rest of the world in order to obtain the resources to produce that 500 billion. The value-added content is extraordinarily low. If you look at China's foreign reserves, which would reflect the accumulation of resources if they were actually getting tremendous amount of additional value, they have been at best flat, and until the introduction of Bitcoin mining, they had been declining.
1: So uh, just to give people a sense of the numbers involved here, right? So... I think you might be somewhat overstating the amount of new Bitcoins that are produced in terms of the effect on actual financial flows globally, right? So today, there's 900 new Bitcoins that are mined every day, right? A block has 6.25 Bitcoins. There's 144 blocks in a day, typically. And Bitcoin is about $30,000, give or take. So that means the entire Bitcoin mining industry has revenue of $10 billion a year. Just about. So, you know, what you're suggesting here is that we have hostile foreign regimes, etc. You know, they're mining Bitcoin, they're getting hard assets. The truth is, most Bitcoins have been mined. 88% of Bitcoin's been mined. The rate of mining issuance is slowing. Every four years, it gets cut in half. The annualized inflation rate of Bitcoin... Monetary inflation is 1.8%. So we're talking about relatively small numbers in the grand scheme here. Like let's say Iran, you know, Iran, the entire mining operation was nationalized, which is not. But, you know, let's say it was. And they were using all of the Bitcoin they were mining to import. uh, You know, all of the Bitcoin was being collected by the state. Now, if you look at, there's some great stats on the Cambridge Uh, alternative finance website um, estimating the location of mining. Iran's about 3.8% of global hash power, according to that estimate, which I think is fairly credible. Right Now, 3.8% of the annualized Bitcoin mining reward is $370 million. How big was the Iran deal, the pallets of cash that Obama shipped over to Iran? I think it was somewhat larger than that. So, Look, we're talking about relatively small numbers here, and and you know certainly there are state-sanctioned mining operations in Venezuela. We know you know the secret police went around confiscating ASICs, and now they mine. But the numbers here don't really bear out any kind of strategic threat to the U.S., especially in light of the fact that we have free flow of capital uh, with most of these countries. Uh, so you know I think you might be sort of overstating the magnitude of the quote unquote problem here.
2: So I I actually disagree that I'm overstating it. I think that you're focused, one, exclusively on Bitcoin. And I understand that the other coins are smaller, but they are ultimately, um, you know, there's quite a bit of profitability. The second is, is that, as you've pointed out, you can use Bitcoin or other altcoins as a storage mechanism. If we look at the flow of funds in the last 36 months... Effectively, during periods of low Bitcoin price, we've actually seen an accumulation by countries like China, where they not only have mined, but they've accumulated by buying on the open market. The second dynamic, though, is what we've seen in the past year, which is in the past year, the estimates are somewhere between 50 and $150 billion worth of crypto assets have been sold. And I would include in that things like Bitmain miners, right, the actual or uh, blanking on the name on it right now, but the actual equipment itself is all coming from China, right? So those dynamics are not inconsiderable. When we're talking billions of dollars, it's important to remember that on an inflation-adjusted basis, the Soviet Union in the 1970s ran on a total of $24 billion in today's terms.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at where those ASICs are going, though, they're mostly being bought by American entities, right? So The future coin reserve as instantiated in ASICs, right? Because that's what ASICs are. They're sort of physical embodiment of coins. Those are being purchased by American entities. And again, this is just like the normal process of trade between the US and China. Now you might say all trade between the US and China is illegitimate and we should sever that capital markets relationship. That would probably honestly be a pretty valid thing to say. And I might even agree with you. But the point is, I don't see anything sinister about trade between the two countries. And to your earlier point as to the relative size of the proof-of-work coins, there's a lot of coins out there. Uh, they're not all proof-of-work. Ethereum is the second largest. They're re- and Ethereum is much, much smaller than Bitcoin, too. So the, the, you know, there really isn't that much outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum in terms of uh, the, the sort of value proposition for miners.
2: So do you dispute the idea that in the last 12 months, China has received Bitcoin and crypto proceeds, inclusive of the sale of mining rigs, in excess of $50 billion?
1: I mean, I'd love to see where you're getting those numbers. I don't see any evidence that China is accumulating all the Bitcoins. Quite the contrary, Um, you know, the major buyers of Bitcoins are largely American institutions, American investors. You can look at these flows every single day. The Grayscale Trust product is probably the big biggest single buyer of Bitcoin. You've got American publicly traded firms like MicroStrategy buying over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Coinbase is the biggest Bitcoin exchange in the world. They have probably about 50 million clients, mostly American, Western European. My former employer, Fidelity, they are one of the largest custodians of Bitcoin in the world. That's for kind of U.S. entities. Um, you know, the the any the folks out there with an appetite to buy Bitcoin uh, are largely Americans. We can look at the balance sheet of the Chinese exchanges Huobi and OKCoin and see you know, the number of Bitcoins they've got on their balance sheet. That's what my firm CoinMetrics tracks. I'm not seeing anything to suggest that these Chinese entities are accumulating hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, fundamentally.
2: So I didn't suggest that, actually. I suggested exactly what you're referring to, that those have been accumulated in the past, and now they are being sold to Americans.
1: Uh, Certainly the case. I mean, a a lot of Bitcoins were historically mined in China. But I don't really see the relevance of historical sales of Bitcoin uh, to Americans. I mean, like the fact is the flow of fiat currency into Bitcoin is happening, you know, largely in the U.S. and and Western Europe. That's that's really the epicenter of this.
2: That's actually quite interesting, though, when I think about it in the context of what you said earlier, that, you know, the primary rationale for adoption was refugees or those who needed to fight back against their governments in places like venezuela or argentina where they were experiencing strongly adverse conditions right it established the moral case for bitcoin what you just told me is it's largely europe and the u.s that is providing the flow of dollars and euros to
1: china that's because i'm first of all like i'm gonna completely dispute the fact that china is the sole producer of bitcoins because that's not true uh and second of all um, American America just fundamentally has the most capital in the world, you know, like America probably represents 40% plus of all the publicly traded equity capitalization globally, right? Even though the U.S. is more like 20% of GDP. So there just are fundamentally large capital markets in this country. That's why they account for a lot of buying power. But Bitcoin is a fundamentally global phenomenon. And if you look at, you know, there's a great study by Chainalysis. They look at the countries where Bitcoin trade occurs. Uh, you know, you look at the per capita intensity of Bitcoin trade. They identify a bunch of different places: XUS, uh, where you have, you know, a high rate of per capita adoption. Ukraine, Russia, Venezuela, obviously China, Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, Colombia. A lot of these places, people are adopting it because of inflation. We know for a fact that there are extremely vibrant Bitcoin markets in Venezuela. Now, if you look at it on an absolute basis, though, the U.S. is going to dominate because there's just fundamentally more capital here. But you could say that the U.S., Individuals and in financial infrastructure monetizing Bitcoin, make it an, a liquid commodity, is a way to support its usage globally because that provides it with a liquidity and a stability that means that it's useful for people around the world. And a lot of the software to use Bitcoin uh, is developed in the U.S. and then it's used, it can be used by dissidents worldwide or folks trying to escape inflation. So there's an enormous positive externality that comes from Americans monetizing the asset.
2: So just very quickly, though, when you said that, I, I, I want to return to your earlier comment. That you said the U.S. has no need for Bitcoin. And what you're saying now is, is that it is a public good that the U.S. is financing the Venezuelans or the Ukrainian dissidents or the Russian dissidents. Although I would question whether what we're actually looking at is dissidents in those last two regions. You're suggesting that the primary role is for the U.S. to accumulate this to finance the resources of the dissidents and the impoverished in the rest of the world.
1: It's a positive externality, of the of the fact that it's you know largely Silicon Valley firms that have built the infrastructure uh, to make Bitcoin functional and useful. I'm not saying it's exclusively American entities that have done this, uh, but it is in large part Americans. But of course, Americans are buying Bitcoin for good reasons too. It's just that that reason is not immediately apparent if you're looking at inflation. But most of us expect that reason to become very clear uh, within the next few years. You just look at the growth in M2 money supply, 20% annualized. Uh, You look at inflation expectations. You look at the fact that direct stimulus has been politically normalized in this country. And sure, a lot of people are thinking, Huh? Maybe we're going to be the next Argentina too. So Americans are buying it for good reasons, and all you have to do is just listen to all of those macro investors that are buying the asset. That's the same justification they give every single time. That they. Well, this, this, Nick,
0: Nick. So let me jump in because this is this is another one of these things that, that I'm looking to understand about Bitcoin, um, and I'd love to get both your thoughts on this because uh, the point you make there about a lot of Americans buying. Bitcoin as as an inflation hedge, um, you know, to me, I just don't see that. I, I don't see that that's the main driving force behind it. It feels like it's a speculative mania to me. I mean, I've seen plenty of it in my time. And, and what we're witnessing now feels like another speculative mania. I don't think most of the people buying Bitcoin are thinking, um, this is going to insulate me from inflation. I think that narrative is out there. Um, but I don't think that's a, a huge component of this at all. The other point about the, you know, the whales, the Paul Tudor Jones of the World of the lot we've seen a lot of these guys come in um, and talk about the merits of Bitcoin. But again, the, the, the thing that I, 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 I don't struggle to understand, but I wrestle with is Bitcoin to me started off as an ideological um Uh, construct, which has great merit. As I said, I totally understand that ideological component behind it. Um, And I think it's it's a very well thought out and very well constructed uh, ideological construct. But I think what's happened as I look at it is that it has now run into Wall Street. And the ideological construct of Wall Street is much simpler. Let's make money. Period. And we don't care how we do it, and we don't care who gets in the way, we're going to make money. And so when I look um, at some of the the adopters of Bitcoin, and, and I'm not I don't mean this in a in a in a pejorative way, but so, but someone let's say Paul Tudor Jones, for example, right? Paul Tudor Jones is arguably the greatest trader of his generation. He's a trader. And that's what he does. And so when Paul Tudor Jones comes out and says, you know, I'm starting to see the merits of Bitcoin, I guarantee you that he is not planning on buying Bitcoin the the following day. I guarantee you, when he says that, he has a position in Bitcoin and he has as big a position in Bitcoin as he was hoping to establish. I also guarantee you, he's not going to come out and say to you at any point in time, I think I'm going to sell my Bitcoin tomorrow. you know, he, he may be asked in several years what happened to his Bitcoin position. He may say, oh, yeah, I sold out my time. But he's not going to do that. These, these guys understand how their words carry weight. They understand how to how to trade and make money from trading. And what I see in, in much of the, the narrative and the dialogue around Bitcoin is absolutely FOMO. It's absolutely get rich quick. It's, it's all the things that you see in speculative manias. And whilst I agree that Bitcoin does, to an extent, if not solve, at least ameliorate that inflation problem, I don't think there's any way that Bitcoin is being brought hand over fist as an inflation hedge in the United States. I just, I just don't see that.
1: Well, I mean, Paul Tudor Jones was quite explicit when he made his position. He said, I came to the conclusion, and I'm quoting, I came to the conclusion that Bitcoin was going to be the best of the inflation trades, the
2: defensive trades. So Trades, yeah. But that's, but that's not the same statement, Nick. That's a very different statement. That is him saying it is going to be the best of the inflation trades, not the solution to inflation, but the asset that would appreciate most as people became concerned about inflation. And exactly to Grant's point, he's been correct, right? It has performed spectacularly well as a reflation narrative has reemerged. The problem is, is when you talk about things like the inflation expectations rising, do you know the level that they have risen to?
1: It's like 2 point something percent I haven't checked today. Yeah,
2: it's 2.08 percent, right? Which is lower than it was in January of 2020. Yeah. I... Right? The actual pricing of inflation expectations is de- is determined from an instrument called a tip. Right. The dynamics of how that tip is constructed and priced is a function of volatility in the marketplace. As volatility has retreated, those inflation expectations have risen, there's no indication that they have unhinged in any way, shape, or form that would support the idea of the sort of speculation. And when you go out to your audience, you start your podcast with the screams of Lehman and bailouts, et cetera, and you talk about prices of $400,000 and $500,000, which is not an inflation hedge. It's a speculative bet. Why do you do that?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for listening to my show. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and I think nobody's claiming that we have CPI inflation in the U.S. today. The mere point is that inflation is a specter which could return. And sure, you can buy Bitcoin once inflation is here, uh, and we're you know the U.S. is once again engaging in monetary oppression, or you could anticipate that and buy it today or last year or the year before that. Now, Bitcoin is still pretty small, so if you're buying it early you're you know there's a significant risk associated with that the world doesn't really understand it well uh, So so was extremely volatile as the world sort of rapidly repriced its expectations of its future growth trajectory so yeah i mean look grant to your earlier point there was absolutely a speculative mania in in bitcoin in 2017 bitcoin was this flow through asset to buy icos etc you've had the, those same market cycles in 2013-14 and before that in 2011-12, that's sort of the way that the asset develops. It's this, these repeated cycles, uh, but the trajectory is generally upwards as the infrastructure gets built out and as more capital gets comfortable uh, with the asset fundamentally. And I can tell you for a fact, I was there in 2017, no institutional investors, no publicly traded companies were giving Bitcoin the time of day but they are now this time so something has changed now you might say well they've just decided that you know there's another opportunity to rip off retail investors and the career risk in owning bitcoin is slightly less but i'm just listening to what these entities and individuals are saying you know we're looking at funds like Ruffer Investments they're a Scottish firm their objective is wealth preservation and really mitigating their downside risk they're a conservative firm They came out and said they bought Bitcoin recently. Now, that doesn't strike me as the kind of a firm that's trying to make a short-term play on a speculative mania here. So there's a diversity in the types of entities uh, that are Bitcoin, and they're not all announcing their position either, for that matter. In fact, if I was a gigantic family office or something, and I was buying Bitcoin, I wouldn't tell anyone. I would just buy it and, and shut up about it. So we're only hearing from the loudest voices out there that are, you know, maybe more trader focused, but there certainly is something that has changed in terms of the acceptability of the asset uh, in 2021 as opposed to 2017, and I would say a lot of that has to do with the actual macro environment. And it's undeniable that the US is pursuing, you know, a really aggressive fiscal approach here. Um, you know, for better or for worse, that's been the reaction to COVID, has been direct injection of of cash into the economy. And now that's, you know, it's different from QE, right? But fundamentally, I think a lot of people expect that a high velocity style issuance of cash directly to households on a recurring basis uh, with a, you know, fully blue uh, presidency and Congress, et cetera, that's likely to be more inflationary. And I don't think that's, you know, that controversial thing to say, now that hasn't shown up in CPI. Certainly, we've seen asset price inflation it hasn't shown up in CPI, but I don't think it's unlikely that um, that it doesn't show up in the next five years. I think a lot of people are looking ahead there. So you don't need CPI to be five six percent, you know, right now for Bitcoin to be worthwhile. I think a lot of these people are anticipating that and sort of allocating defensively.
2: So your forecast would be CPI could rise to a level of five to six percent.
1: Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that, by any means. Yeah.
2: I mean, that was a level that we saw in the mid-90s. We saw that briefly in in the early 2000s with the rising commodity prices. Is, Is that a number that strikes you as indicating financial instability and a collapse of the U.S. dollar?
1: No, I don't believe that the dollar is going to collapse. Sorry, there's people honking outside.
2: Someone's in, someone's in New York.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm in Boston, actually. Oh, I mean, oh, I right. look my, my case for Bitcoin doesn't require the dollar to collapse by any means. And it doesn't even re- it doesn't require that Bitcoin becomes the global reserve currency. It merely suggests that there's room for an alternative, neutral, apolitical, non-state currency alongside the other ones out there. And the Bitcoin offers a non-discretionary monetary policy. As compared with all the other sovereign currencies, where monetary policy is highly discretionary. That's the only thing we're proposing. And we're not coercing anyone. We're not forcing this view on anyone. It's an entirely free market phenomenon, right? As opposed to sovereign currencies, which are coercive by definition, right? You're born into them, it's very hard to opt out of them. So, you know, this is the purest and least coercive approach to monetary competition possible. And I think ultimately it's going to be a disciplinary force on the, the established central banks.
2: So I, I find it interesting that you identify that lack of coercion because to me it explains quite a bit, right? It, it incur- if you have a lack of coercion that effectively says you have to use this, then you have to create a use case for why you should use this. I would also highlight that you referred to it as a currency, which would suggest that the taxation regime needs to change quite dramatically. But with that put aside, let's take that for a second. What you've just established is exactly my objection to how it is currently being marketed to the American public, which is one of fear or one of greed. Right, we're going to capture extraordinary returns. We're going to take your wealth and not only protect it, but we're going to multiply it. You're in a secret club that you got into first. We've got lots of code phrases and lots of words, and you get to be super cool when you join it. But you have real individuals who are putting their financial futures at risk in an asset that you're admitting could very easily be made outlawed, and should be made outlawed in my opinion, given the sucker that it's providing to our enemies. But when you have that underlying characteristic, you have a responsibility to consider what you're doing.
1: Yeah, Mike, I don't think it could easily be made outlawed. And if they tried to make Bitcoin illegal, then I would become a dissident, and you know if they they're happy. They, you know they'd be welcome to throw me in jail, etc. But you know, fundamentally, I don't think there's anything that radical about proposing a currency uh, or you know commodity monetary commodity that's outside the purview of the state. That is the historical default, right? That was the role that gold played for hundreds of years, right? And we've only had a fiat standard for 50 years. So all I'm suggesting is is, a reversion to the mean here.
2: We keep coming back to this general idea that gold is somehow money, right? Gold is not money. Gold was element 79 on the periodic table that was useful in large format coinage. That's all it was.
1: Mike the weather or the nomenclature we use is completely irrelevant to me. What matters to me is the qualities that you get from these these items, right? The important thing about gold is that as you described earlier, it had the good qualities of durability, malleability and um, you know, it was st- stable, really et etc. yeah, had the, and and crucially it was well distributed in the Earth's crust so that you can sort of obtain gold in a bunch of places. And much like Bitcoin, you know it's difficult to obtain gold, and so you have to sort of spend hundred dollars to maybe mine hundred and five dollars worth of gold. So very similar in nature, I would say. Bitcoin resembles that. I, to me, it's somewhat irrelevant what we call it. The important thing is that you're putting your faith in a hard asset, which doesn't have a monetary policy, which is beholden to the state, right? Because we've seen that fail time and time again. And that's why many people yearn for the gold standard.
2: Yeah, but see, this is actually another reason why Bitcoin fails, ultimately. Because what you've done is by making it the ultimate scarcity, by putting it in true scarcity where any bitcoin lost is a bitcoin that'll never be recovered right you've created an asset that ultimately encourages people not to participate right so gold at least if there was a shortage of gold encouraged people to go out and mine and develop and develop new processing techniques for example cyanide process that dramatically expanded the quantity of gold that was available to individuals and to states to use Bitcoin goes in the opposite direction. Your best return from Bitcoin is to do exactly what people are encouraged to do. HODL, not participate. That's damaging to society.
1: Mike, I think you might have a somewhat skewed view of the current technologies that we use to transact with Bitcoin. I mean, certainly in the early days, it was difficult to manage your Bitcoin exposure properly. You know, people lost a lot of Bitcoin before it had a market price, right? That was the news story that everybody saw recently. Those coins that Stefan Thomas lost that are worth however many hundreds of millions now. Couple he, of hundred, yeah. He mined them when Bitcoin literally didn't have a market price in uh in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, right? So it's doesn't it's not surprising that he didn't invest a lot of energy in his in his setup. But twelve years have passed and there's a bunch of, you know, sophisticated ways to transact with Bitcoin such that, you know, there's no real risk of losing your coins. Obviously, we had to go through this learning curve as an industry because we're storing value in the form of information, so we need a new way to safeguard information. The stakes had never been that high for storing information. So we develop you know multi-signature wallets and cryptographic protocols and you know MPC new cryptographic technologies in order to facilitate transactions. But that exists now. That's exactly the kind of thing that we invest in as a firm, right? So you know, I would encourage you to experiment with some of this stuff and and see what it's like. I mean, and it doesn't just concern Bitcoin, by the way. You know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but the the flow of dollars in a tokenized format too. Uh, so, the industry has sort of evolved beyond those incredibly primitive early days when transacting with it carried a lot of risk. Today, if you look at the rate of funds being lost by exchanges, for instance, it's it's much lower than it has been historically.
2: So I think that's definitely true. But again, you opened up an early use case where a refugee memorizes their address and manages to make their way across a a border fraught with risks to achieve great freedom with Bitcoin in the future. If that person happens to get bumped on the head and forget their password, it's gone, right? I mean, it's no different than being robbed by bandits in the hills. So it's not... The difference is... when the bandits rob you in the hills that gold returned to circulation that gold did not disappear in this case it would completely disappear and that individual through their forgetfulness would affect monetary policy that seems absurd
1: well i mean i think you you're sort of the way you're proposing it is that there's some sort of required amount of bitcoin that the world needs in order to function but the amount of bitcoin that exists is completely arbitrary right we can divide up Bitcoin to as many decimal places as we want. So any quantity
2: of so Bitcoin is sufficient. It, that, and when you divide it, does that involve redistribution? Because it doesn't, no. right? All you're doing is saying I have $100 in my pocket, I split it into one, I can have one $100 bill or I can have hundred one dollar bills. That's not redistributing it and spreading the wealth. And in fact, if we look at the Gini coefficient of the Bitcoin economy, it's infinitely higher not infinitely higher it's markedly higher than any other economy in the world
1: where are you getting that gini coefficient data from
2: simply from the storage in the wallets the value that is held by the wealthiest individuals in bitcoin relative to the aggregate value that is held by other players is a higher concentration of wealth than any other in history
1: that's that's not a a like with like comparison because you're looking at a bunch of omnibus wallets for exchanges that are storing a lot of coins on behalf of many individuals in a handful of wallets. So you're not going to be getting a so you're pure suggesting genie that Bitcoin is
2: widely distributed.
1: Well, we know empirically, there's plenty of surveys. The FCA has done surveys, actually, branches of the Fed have done surveys. Canadian Central Bank has done surveys. You got good studies from uh, Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. My best guess is there's around 100 million people worldwide that use cryptocurrency. That's looking at um, exchange accounts, KYC exchange accounts. So, I mean, it's not perfectly distributed by any means, but it gets better distributed
2: every day. So 100 million out of roughly 8 billion?
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's pretty good progress as far as I'm concerned for something that's only about a decade old.
2: Well let,
0: let me let me jump let me jump in on something, because Nick, Nick, this brings up uh, something else that that I'm curious about. You you mentioned a little while ago about the difference between twenty seventeen, that run we saw up in towards the end of twenty seventeen, and and today. And it and it definitely does feel different. A lot of that is down to um broader adoption. Um it's down to the micro strategies of the world, it's down to the grayscales of the world. But uh when I look at that, I wonder if that is all positive. I think it's positive in the fact that it it definitely, until this last week, has reduced volatility quite significantly, um, and that those ninety percent drawdowns that we've been become accustomed to in Bitcoin over its first kind of ten year lifespan uh, feels much harder for that to happen now. But the flip side of that is, and I think this is a point that you've both been knocking backs and forwards here, is. When you've got something like uh, you know Barry's Grayscale Trust, and you've and you've got uh, MicroStrategy's Treasury, and you've got a lot of big um, whales, let's call them, who are uh, who have a much higher tolerance for volatility than the public, uh, than a retail investor, you do have optically at, at least you have this uh, this appearance that this will be a very simple uh, instrument for um, the transfer of Bitcoin from. Uh, weak hands into strong either corporate hands or strong um, uh, kind of Wall Street hands. And I see signs of that. I see signs of, you know, some of the recent drawdowns we've had feel like, to me, what would ordinarily be something you see at the end of a speculative mania, except this time we have a, a kind of two sides to this. we've got We've got big holders who have Threshold for pain, uh, and can watch something that retail money has piled into at forty thousand drop twenty five percent in a few days. They can stomach that. They can sit quietly and then mop up all this stuff. So it feels like Bitcoin is being concentrated at the expense of retail investors into the you know the the the, the Wall Street mafia. Let's call them for, for want of a, a less pejorative phrase. Do, do you is there any validity in that, or am I smoking something? Well.
1: <laughs> It's it's a fair point. I mean, as with any volatile asset that retail participates in, retail will occasionally lose money, 100%, even if the asset typically goes up. There's nothing I or anyone can do about that. Barry's Trust, though, the the Grayscale product, those coins are held on behalf of individuals that want to own financial Bitcoin in their brokerage account. So, you know, that's not, uh, you know, they have about seven... Uh, probably even maybe three percent of all outstanding Bitcoins, something like that. Uh, that represents probably hundreds of thousands of individuals that want to hold Bitcoin on Schwab and Fidelity and so on. Uh, so that's not you know one entity. Um, yeah, for, for. My, microStrategy on the other hand, they've accumulated I think seventy thousand bitcoins. That is under the purview of one entity. Um, but you know, I would just invite you to look at the blockchain itself. You know, so it, it's very transparent. Um, unlike other assets, this is one of the really interesting things about Bitcoin. Uh, you know, Every transaction is visible. You can uh, run amazing analytics on it. So you can do this query for yourself. And I wish I could pull up this chart for you right now. I mean, you can look at the number of addresses that have retail-sized amounts of Bitcoin, people holding Bitcoin on-chain. So you can look at the number of addresses where they're holding 0.01 Bitcoin or 0.1 Bitcoin. You can see that numbers is typically increasing over time. So I'm not seeing evidence for concentration when I look at the blockchain. I, I see the opposite. I see dispersion, you know, and so that's very positive. Well, one of the things
2: that you've pointed out, though, one of the things you've pointed out is, is that almost all the Bitcoins have been mined, right? So the only way that it gets distributed to the rest of the world is by spending from some group that has a concentrated component of it. That's right, how are you proposing that that gets distributed?
1: It gets distributed as you know long time holders sell out right They have liquidity needs. a lot of people you know accumulated Bitcoin early on, maybe they got it from a faucet or you know there there are a bunch of ways to accumulate Bitcoin in the early days and they ultimately need to consume and so they sell their bitcoins uh, to newer newer holders and so this is the distributed effect. You can look at the history of uh, for instance, the Canadian Central Bank has a time series survey. They've run it three years in a row now. Uh, you know, counting up how many Canadians own Bitcoin, you see the number increasing year over year. So, if you look at any of this data, you'll see the number of coiners uh, is increasing globally. Um, it's it's hard not to arrive at that conclusion quite fundamentally.
2: But when you look at that underlying dynamic, right? Again, there is no example in history where the distribution of a currency or a good that represented wealth began with a small select group and then scaled in the manner that you're talking about outside of private companies like Apple or Microsoft, et cetera. And functionally, that's what it is, right? I mean, what you're alluding to is the idea that you're buying shares in a company, in a protocol. We've heard people refer to this as the early days of the internet. What if you could own a piece of TCP IP, right? Yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is it fits every tulip in history. It is all things to all people. It is the mirror that reflects what you desire.
1: Yeah, I I like, I agree. I mean, I I think that's why it's so difficult to discuss Bitcoin is because it's tinged with whatever your particular perspective is. I don't see it as a corporate entity at all. I see it as an organic bottom-up phenomenon. And if you're Satoshi, I don't see how else you would have designed it such that it could achieve this credibility and neutrality in issuance, aside from the way that he did it. And that's the whole reason we have proof of work. Because mining is costly. You have to surrender electricity in order to create new units of Bitcoin. The whole reason Satoshi designed it like that is so that there's no seniorage, so that there's no privileged class of people that have access to the monetary spigot which is the case with other monetary systems, right? So because you have to burn you know, $95 to get $100 worth of Bitcoin, it's a free market competitive process and you have very slim margins, that means that the people that are creating the units don't really have an advantage over the rest of the folks. So that's how Satoshi did it. I mean, he could have emailed all the Bitcoins to the folks on the cryptography or cypherpunk mailing list when he announced it in 2008, but that wouldn't have been fair. So he designed proof of work and included that into the system so that there would be this fairness in issuance. I think that's pretty much the best possible way he could have done it. I can't think of an alternative way.
2: So if you're saying there wasn't a privileged class, then why do we have several centimillionaires or billionaires that have emerged out of the early days of Bitcoin before it's even been proven?
1: Because there was they're effectively speculators that made a very correct and very ballsy bet, basically this is the case with any monetary transition, it's always going to be disorderly. You're never going to be able to airdrop the new monetary system pro rata to everybody on Earth. Uh, so, okay. But that's,
2: that's, again, that's ahistorical, right? Brazil introduced new currency, Germany introduced new currency, Japan introduced new currency. We've seen currencies introduced all over the world. They've never had the characteristic of a billion and a half drop to one individual and a few dollars drop to another individual.
1: The, those you, you yourself said the Bitcoin is not a currency, and yeah, of course the state has
2: well, discretion. Like, but you just called it. You say, Nick, you can't go back and forth on this. You can't call it a monetary system and then claim that it's not a currency. Well,
1: I, I, I mean, look, I think those are distinct, right? Like, if you think currency is the purview of the state, fine. But yeah, certainly Bitcoin is a monetary commodity, right? So the system is is absolutely what it is. Uh, but again, look, this is an organic phenomenon. It is new because we have never seen new internet-native monetary systems emerge from scratch before because the internet didn't really exist before. But cyberpunks have been trying to create digital cash for decades. Bitcoin was just the apotheosis of that. It was the conclusion of their efforts. It was by no means the first one. There were a lot of failures before that. It was just the first successful one. But because we live in a world that's rapidly becoming dematerialized, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we have an internet-native currency. And under the circumstances, Satoshi distributed it in a way that was as fair as possible. If you want to get privileged access to Bitcoin, there's no way you can do that. You have to mine it alongside anybody else, and so you have to compete in the free market with mining.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I actually disagree with that. I think the evidence is very clear that it wasn't distributed as fairly as possible. It was distributed to those with inside knowledge. Again, if I'd listened to my wife, perhaps i would be sitting on your side of the table right she didn't have that's inside knowledge
1: true. she had outside
2: knowledge right there is that's possible <laughs> well she is a, she is she is a woman and she is my wife and therefore she's <laughs> going mean, to be infinitely wiser in all situations unless
1: you know she's part of the group that was satoshi but like seriously like satoshi announced bitcoin in october 20 2008 gave everyone on that mailing list advance notice and then in January 2009, started mining Bitcoin. If Satoshi had wanted to sort of allocate themselves a share, they could have. They could have said, hey, I deserve 10% of this thing, which would have been a more corporate model, right? That would have probably been valid. But instead, Satoshi just made it equal opportunity. It's just that nobody cared about it, and nobody thought it was going it's, to
2: succeed. It's equal, it's, Nick, come on. It's equal opportunity. He distributed it to a mailing list. That's no different than a friends and family insider round.
1: It was the most... <laughs> Salient demographic because it was an incredibly esoteric digital cash project. So
2: yeah, I'm sure every Silicon Valley venture capitalist tells themselves the same thing that it's an egalitarian spread amongst their friends. And family. No,
0: but Mike, Mike, in, in fairness, I'm, I'm with Nick on this because I think I think this is something that if 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 he if he distributed. Um, you know, Satoshi used to everyone in the world. Most people wouldn't care; they would have thrown him away or just ignored it. You know, it. The people that actually cared and were engaged and were were keen to build something uh, from the ground up were given some, but it was it was distributed among the people who cared about it, which I think is probably the best thing. or the only yeah, you know, it's, it's the it's the fairest you could have been at the time. I think.
2: Just look at the Russian. Yeah, again, I think that's part of the reason why it matters that currency and monetary systems are ultimately the province of the state, because in any monetary situation, we've actually established those types of transitions as being a distribution by the state, right? The taxation is done on the basis of your wealth capability, your income capability. The distribution is a function of individual need. In some cases, they do have privileged access. There is no question about that, but the distribution is infinitely more fair to use the language that you'd like to use than what you're describing where it's sent to a technology list again that's just a corporate action that's no different than a friends and family or insider list on a corporate raise
1: mike there was a period of about 18 months when bitcoin did not have a market price and it just circulated freely and for years bitcoin was worth virtually nothing so anybody that was remotely interested in digital currency could have acquired it for almost nothing Today, they can acquire it at a $600 billion market cap, which is really not that much in the grand scheme. So, yeah, it's undergoing the secular, decades long process of monetization and realizing its destiny as a monetary asset of consequence. You can invest in it at any stage. You could have taken enormous risk early on, or you could have taken a much lesser risk later on when it was significantly de risked from a regulatory perspective. From a sort of infrastructure perspective, et cetera. So it's just really where you wanted to situate yourself on that curve. But I completely dispute that it was corporate in nature. Satoshi completely understood the need to make it equal opportunity. And now I, you know, I suppose he could have taken out an ad in the New York Times saying, hey, if you want to be involved in this digital currency of the future, you know, be sure you mine Bitcoin. But fundamentally, it was only hardcore enthusiasts that you know had the wherewithal and the desire to actually run a node
0: well listen guys let, let me let me um, let me pivot this a little bit and and talk about tether a little bit because this is this is this is the kind of thing that this is the story that's kind of put us all on this on the same call today um and a couple of things occurred to me you know, I, I saw this story hit the wires very interesting very well written um and i you know i I wanted to seek the other side out because, as I read it, it seemed highly problematic to me what what um, Crypto Anonymous was was talking about, um, particularly given his background. Now, in this day and age, we have to say purported background because who knows this guy may be nothing that he represents himself to be. I don't know, but um, you know the the this caused an awful lot of back and forth from from both. Proponents of Bitcoin and critics of it, but Nick, if I can, can I get you to just because I, I, I fully expect me to be the dumbest person listening to this podcast with regards crypto, but just in case there's someone slightly dumber than me, can you um, can you just lay out how Tether's constructed and what what the idea for Tether is and, and what it was designed to facilitate? Because I think that's the important thing to understand before we go down the rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, so I I won't touch on the details of the story just yet. I'll just describe Tether, yeah, first yeah, of all. Great. So Tether is effectively a dollar-stable token which circulates on public blockchains. And it's meant to inject dollar-denominated liquidity and combine it with the settlement assurances of public blockchains. And it circulates on a number of blockchains. Ethereum is the main one, Tron is another. There's some on Bitcoin, and there's a handful of other smaller blockchains. Um The purpose of tether initially was to settle transactions between crypto exchanges that had uncertain access to the fiat banking system and between their clients and allow them to hold collateral and dollar terms on chain in a crypto native way such that they didn't have to constantly make bank transfers with these exchanges the, the first exchange that really sort of underwrote Tether or you know, promoted it was Bitfinex. And Bitfinex had this history of being deplatformed from banks, including Wells Fargo. So they really embraced Tether as this way to allow their traders to sort of hold a US dollar position uh, and trade in and out with Bitcoin. Uh, so, that was the purpose. And then mechanically, the way it actually works is there's certain sort of qualified participants that create and redeem Tether. Uh, they face off against Tether itself, which has this bank called Deltec. Um, and if Tether trades above the peg, because there's a lot of demand for Tether in the market, these entities- the peg ent- being one, one dollar one, to one Tether. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, then these entities will create Tether at par and collect the difference, uh, and if it trades below the peg. You know they can redeem tether for a dollar and collect the difference to the market price, and so that's the mechanic through which tether stays in line uh, with the peg. Effectively, there's a lot more to the story, but the, the, those are the basics. Yeah,
0: I mean, and and, and we'll get to the story. So, so uh, Mike, I know that you've you've spent a lot of time looking at tether. Um, you know, you've looked into it. You've you've gained your own understanding of it. Um, let, let's start with your understanding of Tether, potentially the, the problems that you see inherent in, in the structure of it.
2: So the way I would describe Tether is it's the equivalent of a money market mutual fund. When you invest with Fidelity or you invest with Schwab, you're not actually making a deposit. You are buying shares in a money market mutual fund, which is a uh, zero variance or a zero volatility asset. Effectively, the same thing we're describing with the stablecoin dynamic around Tether, those um, entities in a money market mutual fund hold exclusively high-quality liquid assets. They regularly publish that information. Right Now, Tether was introduced, exactly as Nick describes, onto the blockchain uh, and into the, the crypto community to provide that type of equivalent, effectively a zero-volatility asset that could be held in lieu of being exposed on a continuous basis to the high-volatility associated With Bitcoin or other crypto assets. The problem, of course, is that unlike a money market mutual fund, it has zero transparency. It is being run by a firm that is currently being sued by the New York Attorney General for defrauding its investors and failing to reveal that they had taken a substantive loan somewhere in the neighborhood of $750 million from the deposits that were supposed to be held in high quality liquid assets to bail out the corporate parent because the corporate parent had been so irresponsible as to sign up with a Panamanian processor and not even get the terms constructed so that when they gave them roughly a billion dollars, $850 million, that the Panamanian processors just said, thank you very much. We have no obligation to you. We're going to keep that money. Failing to reveal that is sitting at the core of the New York Attorney General's suit against Bitfinex. I would go a step further and say, even after that event, we have no transparency. They list a quote-unquote transparency page that clearly lays out their claimed liabilities in the crypto space. So how much Tether has been authorized or is held against Ethereum or against uh, Bitcoin or against TRON, as Nick was pointing out, but it lists an asset number with no details behind those assets whatsoever. And if you parse the statements that they make, even to the New York Attorney General, where they state we are 74 percent backed and we hold X amount in the quantity of cash and cash equivalents, they make no statement as to the liabilities. And this sits at the core of the difference between an audit and an attestation. All we have for tether is somebody saying that at some point or another they saw cash that was equivalent to X percent of the assets. There is no statement as to was that a short-term loan, was that actually segregated customer accounts, etc.
0: So, so now explain um, why this is important because because we, there's a couple of components that I want to help people understand. That is the um, the application of. Seemingly extreme leverage here um, and then and, and the de- potential damage that causes and also um, the flows through Tether and into into the coins. Nick, pre- perhaps you could go first and just take yeah. on the leverage component of that.
1: Well, so, you know, first of all, I don't really dispute anything of what Mike is saying here. Um, you know, I obviously don't have any exposure to Tether. I'm not a user of Tether. Um I certainly know entities and market makers and trading firms that use Tether and create and redeem Tether and have created and redeemed hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Tether because it's incredibly useful uh, in the crypto context. Um, the other piece of context I would add would be I believe that seventy four percent backed claim was in twenty nineteen. Uh, so unfortunately, Tether is incredibly untransparent and um, they have they do not. Uh, produce a monthly attestation as to the reserves, um, unlike other stablecoin issuers. And it's unclear to me why they don't do this. Um, I don't believe that they are massively fractional reserve or anything like that, but
2: I think... Why do you not believe that?
1: I'm sorry? Well, I, I personally have no reason to believe that you know the entities behind a very profitable business would undertake a gigantic fraud for sort of unclear reasons. Um, but
2: do you, do you have proof that it is the case that they are not fractionally reserved? No, I have no
1: inside knowledge whatsoever. Right, I'm a complete outsider when it comes to tether. I'm a market participant, but I don't use tether uh, out of prudence. Of course, if I had to use a stable coin,
2: it would be USDC. Um, but on your podcast, you stated that you knew uh, firms that had done. Billions of dollars of redemptions of Tether. Is it hundreds of millions or is it billions?
1: I don't know if I said billions of dollars of redemptions, but um, you did. Okay, well I'll have to go back and listen. But yeah, I I know we interviewed uh, Dan Matashevsky who said that. On my, if you want to go back and listen.
0: Mike, look, just 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 explain um, to people who perhaps aren't a hundred percent okay with it. Just explain why fractional reserve creates a problem here.
2: So when you have fractional reserve with something like a money market mutual fund, effectively what you are doing is you are continually having new entrants buy an asset that has increasingly less backing behind it. Effectively, the first person buys it at a dollar, you issue extra shares on top of what you're supposed to issue. So the next person is actually paying a dollar for 90 cents and the person after that is paying a dollar for 85 cents and the person after that is paying a dollar for 65 cents. What that creates is a Ponzi characteristic where absolutely redemptions can occur as long as money is flowing in. And this is one of the fascinating dynamics of Tethers is that we've seen their pace of activity and their pace of money printing explode while they've been under investigation by the New York Attorney General. They've made no statements or claims about what their current financial conditions are. They've been unwilling to have an audited release. We get shadowy reports, as I said, And of course, the claim that Nick and others have made is that the reason that they can't speak is because their tax returns are currently being audited. I'm sorry, that was Donald Trump. What they're actually saying is, hey, they're being sued and therefore they can't speak. And yet, meanwhile, the chief technology officer of Bitfinex or Tether is out speaking on podcasts and Dell Tech is out speaking today. Their deputy CIO goes out to speak. So it's one of the two. Either they're intentionally misleading us and being obscure in their communications, or they shouldn't be speaking at all. Which one is it? Well,
1: I mean, quite frankly, I'm not, you know, a representative of Tether. And I fully expect that, you know, within the next 24 months, Tether could be shut down by the NYAG, if enough political capital is marshaled in this, in this country. And I think it would probably be healthy for the overall crypto ecosystem, what you're omitting is the fact that there are certain extravagant claims being made by entities like Crypto Anonymous and other folks um, claiming that Tether is being used to support the price of Bitcoin with unbacked issuance, which is then converted into sort of naked Bitcoin buys. Now, that is the claim that I contest, right? The fact that Tether is unaccountable and untransparent, that is known, and you know I obviously support more transparency, But I also contest the claim that basically Tether is responsible for the price of Bitcoin. If you look at the statistical evidence, we don't see that. And fundamentally, I don't really see any evidence that Tether is being issued on an unbacked basis uh, to support the price of Bitcoin.
2: So it's interesting that you mentioned that, right? Because if you, first of all... um, Think about the claims that Crypto Anonymous or others, for example, John Griffin, as in Griffin and Shams, are making. It's not that it's being used to drive the price higher. It's that it's being used to support the price. So when price declines occur, additional tether are printed that in turn support the price or arrest the fall, giving the illusion that it is a safer and more secure asset. Nobody's disputing the data that you've presented or that you've mentioned in terms of institutional or retail flow of capital coming from American or European accounts. Everybody acknowledges that that's a component. The question is, is Tether being used to support it when it declines? Now, there's a paper from John M. Griffin, right, which was released first in 2018 and then again in 2020 that alleges exactly that and demonstrates it in a statistical fashion
1: yeah, so that's the paper in question that I'm contesting because again, so they managed to get published in the Journal of Finance. So congrats to them. But there's other papers that contest that, right? And say there's no statistical relationship between the issuance of tether and the price of Bitcoin. So you know, like p- pick your pick your paper here.
2: yeah, so so let's actually refer to those papers because you've been helpful in providing them, right? So first, I just want to actually give the background of John Griffin, right, who's a professor of finance at the University of Texas, runs a firm focused on forensic accounting and the identification of fraud for the recovery of individuals. He has no interest in Tether or Bitcoin. On the other hand, you cite papers by Lyons and Vishwanath uh, Natraj, right, and their paper, which you say disputes or disproves the Griffin paper, says on page 30, buried at the back, our results do not discount the possibility that price manipulation can occur as discussed in Griffin and Shams. The second paper that you cite is Wang Chunwei, who has written papers on trading cryptocurrencies, is actively promoting it on Tether. And in his view, he says, uh, let's see. Our paper does not examine whether the Tether coins are backed by US dollars or not, we examine the impact on subsequent cryptocurrency price. We do not find evidence that it causes subsequent increases. They say nothing about supporting the price. There's a difference between a price increase and a support. The third paper you cite by Kristof Feka, whatever his name is, who is also a Bitcoin pumper on Twitter and is a professor out of the Czechoslovakian Republic. Solo published both of these papers, by the way, neither able to attract co-authors. And in his paper on page 19, it says the interpretation of this phenomenon is highly dependent on stablecoin backing. If the backing is valid and existent, but not necessarily a full backing, then the stablecoin influx signals an increased demand and investment in crypto assets. If this does not occur and the stable coins are created out of thin air, then it suggests that the new stable coins are being sent to the market to further inflate the other crypto prices. Page 19.
1: Yeah, Mike, I've read all four papers and Griffin and Shams is the one making an extravagant claim, right? And that's the claim being leveraged by people like whoever Crypto Anonymous is to claim that Tether is completely unbacked. So what we empirically found during the NYAG case was that they were at least 74% backed and prior to that, before they gave the loan to Bitfinex, 100% backed. That's where the loan money came from, right? So that so let's actually be really clear was, on that. Though. When right. you
2: say, I, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt because you've said a couple of things that I think are really important. When you say empirically, you do not have an audit. You do not have an empirical demonstration of the existence of those assets. You have the statement of an individual who is accused of committing a crime.
1: We have the NYAG the thing, pointing that out.
2: Who cares? People lie to the NYAG all the time. How many criminals say I didn't do it?
1: Do you you believe that the NYIG documents where they said their tether was 74% backed were just false?
2: I believe that they worded it very carefully. They said we have cash and cash equivalents equal to 74%. They said nothing about the liabilities or the claims that existed on those cash and cash equivalents. They could have taken a loan from Bitfinex of $750 million. They could have received a short-term cash infusion that immediately disappeared afterwards.
1: Yeah, I'm. Look, I'm not disputing that Tether has done a terribly poor job of transparency, or that they're being sued by the NYG. I'm.
2: But you are doing something really important, right? You're making statements about the paper by John M. Griffin, saying that he's making extravagant yes, claims. So his claims are, extravagant, are extravagant, and
1: his sample period is no, one year. They
2: actually aren't. Actually, Tether's been Nick, around for six well years, reported. and his sample period is one Nick. year. His statements, yes. The second, the third paper, which admits that it depends on whether the crypto, the the stablecoin is backed or not, right, uses a period of five years as compared or six years as compared to a single year, which was intentional because John Griffin was focused on a particular period. He's re-released that paper with full support. But you're doing something that I think is really important and very typical in the crypto space. You're denigrating his work. You're saying it's an extravagant claim that it's unsupported. Right, but it is supported, and you're saying it's not uns- it's not supported does not make it so. Just like your statement that there's empirical support for a 74% backing, is not empirical support. It is a statement by an individual being accused of a crime. Mike, the Griffin and Shams paper
1: is an inferential analysis of Bitcoin price and tether issuance. You're never going to find hard facts in a econometric inference fundamentally and especially not in a one-year period where the price of Bitcoin went up and the issuance of Tether went up. Moreover, the supply of Tether at the end of 2017 was in the $1 to $2 billion range, if I'm remembering correctly. So that is just a fundamentally different time in the history of Tether. Today, there's something like $25 billion of Tether circulating. So it's a completely different market environment. And I already explained, I provided plausible explanations as to how Tether price action actually worked. If you listen to my podcast, I had a bunch of Tether market participants come on and explain how they use Tether and how the arbitrage flow works, and they described their experience of redeeming Tether. Now, this was a central pillar of the argument that no one redeemed Tether. So, I'm presenting you with people that are claiming to have redeemed Tether. My question is, you know, which is the argument that you're making? Are you purporting that Tether is completely unbacked and no one ever redeems it no one uses it? Because that's a very popular view. Or are you alleging that Tether itself is untransparent? That's something I agree with. But there's a whole variety of different, there's a cluster of different allegations being made here with sort of varying levels of evidence, and not all of them are really consistent with reality.
2: So it's interesting that you mentioned that because I certainly didn't claim that there were no redemptions. And in fact, it appears that there were extraordinary levels of redemption that occurred in 2018, which would roughly coincide with the time period in which Tether issued a third coin or a second coin, I'm sorry, the Leo coin designed to recapitalize itself in an ICO.
1: Yeah, Bitfinex. Right? Issued we have no accounting that, you know,
2: for I'm sorry, Bitfinex
1: what Bitfinex issued the Leo coin. Yeah.
2: Correct. Bitfinex issued the Leo coin, right? So what appears to have happened actually is, is that you're correct. Your market participants in a period of time withdrew significant quantities of, of capital. The underfunded or unbacked Tether issuance began in earnest in the aftermath of that. From everything I can see, there is zero backing to Tether. And if I go a step further and I read the legal claims embedded in the Tether contract, I actually have no claim. It's a completely unsecured claim with the, most the backing of $150 million insurance policy against a $25 billion outstanding balance.
1: My understanding is, and again, I would love for the Tether folks and Bitfinex to clarify this, was that the Leo coin was issued, and keep in mind, every exchange has issued, virtually every exchange has issued an exchange token. The Leo ICO was done in order to remediate that $850 million debt the Bitfinex had to Tether. Now, whether they repaid that is another question entirely, but that's the chronology as far as I understand it.
2: I, I agree it is another question entirely. So, so, guys, I just want to
0: talk
1: about
2: why
0: Tether is potentially important. But let's, let's talk about why if the, if, the, if the accusations that have been made against it um, turn out to be true and one presumes that in the fullness of time we will, we will get to the bottom of it. Um, why is it important, uh, Mike, why is it important if, if this is a fraud?
2: So in the simplest form, let's just just imagine instead of the use of Tether, let's imagine I now have a counterfeiting press and I can print dollar bills, right? And let's imagine we have a company where there are 100 shares outstanding. Each share is trading at $10. If I have a magic printing press, I can go to you and say, hey, I'd really like to buy a share from you at $10. And you say, no, I'm not going to sell to you at $10. I run my magic printing press. I now have $20. I say, I'd like to buy a share from you at $20. You say, that's fantastic. I'm very happy to sell you one share at $20. The contribution to the system that I have is I've given out $20 worth of counterfeit money. There is no dollars going into the system, but the reported market cap of this company has now doubled. That's exactly what would happen if Tether was unbacked.
1: Yeah, so I'm not going to comment on whether it's backed or not. I fundamentally don't know, and I believe that I've made that clear on here because Tether has not been transparent, right? So it's impossible unless you're an executive at Tether to know, and obviously they need to remediate that. However, I will agree, Tether is systemically important to the crypto industry, not because it's used to inflate the price of Bitcoin, which I don't believe it is. There's incredibly liquid Bitcoin US dollar markets in the US that don't involve Tether at all, right? Uh, this is something people don't really talk about very much uh it's systemically important because all of the offshore derivative exchanges, the derivatives exchanges use tether as the uh they denominate their contracts in tether terms and it's the main collateral for those exchanges so if and when tether is ultimately taken down by the u.s state at that point those exchanges are going to have a hard time uh with their contracts it might maybe trades at a discount and blows the contracts out of the water uh and traders have a harder time getting liquidity to those exchanges uh so it kill, it probably helped kill off the long tail altcoins in a lot of these offshore exchanges that facilitate crypto to crypto trading uh so that would be what i would expect at some point if and when tether goes down
2: Well, it's important, though, also, because remember that Tether is held as collateral in those systems. So loans occur against Tether. It's not infrequent if I look at exchanges globally, right, the foreign exchanges that you highlight, that we get 10 to 100x leverage against Tether. If I look at the U.S. exchanges, only Kraken, to my knowledge, is actively offering Tether and you can use 2x leverage against it. If you've borrowed 2x against something that goes to zero, you are now on the hook for an awful lot of money.
1: What happened historically when there were other episodes of convertibility being suspended with Tether was that it traded a discount to the peg, but it didn't immediately go to zero. And that's what I would expect if, for instance, Deltec was, the funds were immobilized, people would leave Tether and then arbitrageurs would come in and buy Tether so that they could redeem it at par once those funds were dispersed, if there were any funds.
2: So wait a second, I'm sorry. They, if Tech had its funds seized, or importantly, we discovered that there were no funds there, why would an arbitrage player step in to buy it?
1: Let's say they believed that there were funds there, they would step in and buy them the same way that, you know, Gox claims those entities that are buying up those claims uh, in expectation of a payout. They're providing short-term liquidity to the people that want to exit that claim. So it would be the exact Where same Where are those thing.
2: claims trading is cents on the dollar? The Gox claims
1: I couldn't tell you honestly.
2: My understanding is they're trading in the twelve to fifteen cent range.
1: Sure, that's because Gox lost a lot of money, though.
0: Well, we saw we saw this with with Lehman Brothers, right? I mean, the Lehman Brother claims ultimately ended up getting settled at or close to par for, in many cases, um, but obviously there was a, there were an awful lot of assets there to be sifted through and unwound. You know, it seems to me that if Tether Turns out to be unbacked. I think that arbitrage scenario turns out to be very unlikely to to be the way it goes because I think if, if in, in the previous uh, issue you you cited there, Nick, there weren't claims of fraud necessarily um, floating around, and there, and there weren't under investigation by the NYAG. So I, I, I don't know. I, it's, that's that's why when I read the article, it seemed to me to be to be very important because the. the, the, the The quantum of this turning out to be true seems to me to be a very material problem for the entire cryptocurrency space.
1: I mean, if we're talking about the article itself, there's a lot of holes I can poke in it. Um, It's clearly written by a market participant that's not really part of the crypto markets, right? I mean, the critiques of Tether that Mike raises are potentially quite valid. But the article itself uh, is kind of less it, there, there's less to it. I mean, like the, a lot of it relies on this notion of uh, this assessment of Bitcoin liquidity as being largely against Tether. And that just relies on junk data. That relies on CoinLib data. And they take exchange data at face value. But the thing these exchanges that rely on Tethers do is they fabricate volume to make themselves look liquid. Because these are not exchanges like NYSE or NASDAQ. These are kind of fly-by-night exchanges um, set up by you know a couple guys in a basement. So the Tether data, um, the Tether BTC data, and the Tether altcoin data, that is overstated. Everyone that's involved in crypto markets knows this, right? Bitwise pointed it out in their SEC application, right? You have a bunch of providers um, like Masari, like The Block, like Coinmetrics, my firm, that do the work to denoise this data and to create a whitelist of exchanges that are credible. But CoinLib doesn't do that. So we're dealing with data which overstates uh, Tether's liquidity impact on the market. So that's just one of many things that I could point out uh, that you know kind of poke holes in this particular analysis uh, and suggest to me that the author of this paper is not really a seasoned crypto market participant at all.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know the author of the paper, and I actually kind of share Nick's view that the author comes close but doesn't actually get the true story. So... From my standpoint, the paper is a distraction and the attempt to use it as a vehicle for dispelling the uncertainty around Tether is disingenuous.
0: Right. Well, okay, look, before we wrap this up, and it's been a fascinating conversation, and I can't thank you both enough for actually sitting down and doing this in in, in such a civil way, which in, in the crypto space is not always that easy. Um, but but let, let's just get both of your views about what, what happens now. What, what should... What should we be looking out for as the next stage of this? I'm, I'm talking particularly about the, the, the Tether. Um, it, it, are we waiting for the MYAG? Are we waiting for, does price solve this? What, what do we think happens next, and what should people be paying attention to?
1: I mean, I can go first. I I think it would be nice to have a resolution to the Tether story, um, whether it's um, a seizure of the funds in the bank accounts. That would remind the industry that, They should not be holding collateral, which is impregnated with liability. And they should be focusing on liability-free assets like Bitcoin. Bitcoin was previously kind of the sole reserve asset in the crypto industry. And then the crypto industry, a lot of these exchanges became tetherized, right? And it would be a healthy correction if tether is eliminated from the markets. And either Bitcoin returns as the crypto reserve asset or other stable coins, which are more credible, uh, return... Uh, and and grow their market share, right? So there is plenty of very valid stablecoins which are either backed by crypto collateral or which are backed by dollars and they perform monthly attestations. Uh, so Tether is definitely a black cloud hanging the, over the industry and uh, I would love to see it resolved. Um, I don't believe it is catastrophic. I think its failure would be felt by every industry market participant, for sure. But I fundamentally would dispute the allegation that Bitcoin is trading at non-zero prices because of Tether?
2: So I wouldn't dispute that Bitcoin is trading at non-zero prices because of Tether. (laughs) I would suggest that the price is dramatically inflated because of Tether. Um, As I look at what happens next, my expectation is is that in advance of the NYAG making a ruling, we'll ultimately find that Tether is not backed um, and that Tech is not the entity that it presents itself to be. Uh, I would suggest that that's going to have a significant impact on the Bitcoin price and the crypto universe and that many of the institutions that have been, in my opinion, hoodwinked into investing into a momentum asset will reconsider their perspective. I know many of the players involved, including the ones that Nick mentioned, and I would suggest that they do indeed view it as a trade. They do not view it as a long-term investment. I think, unfortunately, what will end up happening is that the output from this is going to result in significant regulatory action from the U.S. government. And that on that event, unfortunately, as Nick says, he's going to become a dissident and a rebel against the United States. I think many others will be likewise encouraged to do so. And it contributes to the fractioning of our society, which I think is a a true problem we have.
0: Nick, a final word before you before you become a dissident. (laughs)
1: Look, I find it comical that Mike portrays crypto as something that's deepening the divisions in our society. Our society is divided regardless of whether or not a niche asset class exists or not. Okay, But the way that society is going is clearly we have an enormous debt overhang and that's going to have to be remediated through inflation because the U.S. is not going to default on its debt. right? And there's a lot of entities positioning themselves uh, to protect themselves from that inflation. That's fundamentally what's going on. Outside of the U.S., you already have monetary repression, devaluation, inflation. Bitcoin is quite relevant in these places, uh, but I'm sure it'll be much more relevant in the U.S. And Tether is an extremely convenient stick to bash Bitcoin with, fundamentally. It allows otherwise smart people to dismiss the Bitcoin phenomenon without engaging with it completely. And quite frankly, the Bitcoin phenomenon is much bigger than any single stablecoin that's attached to it. Bitcoin is about monetary freedom and freeing yourself from the tyranny of monetary discretion. And it has been tyrannical, whether it's through inflating asset prices and making young folks feel like they don't have a stake in society because they can't uh, obtain a 401k at reasonable prices, or they can't buy property in an urban center, or whether it's through the more direct form of inflation. That's what people reject. And I think you should look at this movement of especially young people to embrace alternative monetary rules like Bitcoin as evidence that the monetary authorities in this country have failed and are continuing to fail and their hands are tied now. And they're not really going to be able to extricate us from this current mess without devaluing the dollar. And so, you know, I I would encourage you to think of Bitcoin as a longer term phenomenon uh, than simply momentum trade. For sure, it has cycles. It has these booms and busts. But the longer term trend here is a secular trend of monetization and becoming an asset of consequence. And it's well on its way to being that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I find that really interesting, Nick, because I, I think you're absolutely right about the, the failure of central bank, the failure of policymakers. And Mike, to your point about this division in society, you know, what, what troubles me um, potentially about this is the, the, the Bitcoin movement are an extraordinarily smart, uh, tech-savvy, idealistic group of people um and i think i think they have built something remarkable over this time but what troubles me is that when you have young smart idealistic people who suddenly turn into very wealthy young idealistic people at that point if the government was to do something about Bitcoin, whether outlaw it, make it legal, confiscate it, whatever they may do, and, and perhaps another time we can get into whether that's possible or not. Because I feel like it is, and I'm I'm told it isn't, but I, I kind of I'm not sure about that. But I can't think of a, a more problematic uh, situation for a government to face. I think if you if you take the the wealth component out of it, if you if you just assume that um, the, the the Bitcoin movement are young smart, tech savvy, idealistic, and you take away that dream, um, then the reaction from them is wholly different to the reaction you might get if you take away hundreds of billions of dollars from them as well. Because you're not only taking away their dream, you're taking away the future that in their minds they've, they've built for themselves. And I cannot think of a worse enemy to, to create within your own borders than that group of people, young, smart, Pissed off, incredibly tech savvy. Um, it, it just seems, to Mike's point, potentially um, a, a very problematic situation for a government to to let's face saddle itself with. And, and I do worry about that. I have to say.
1: Is that directed at me or Mike? <laughs> or no, no,
0: no. That, that was just asked. that was just me kind of yeah. saying that. If if, if if
1: feel free if you want to, if you would like to address it, feel free. No. Nick. I mean, I, I think, I, just I really think Mike deserves a closing statement as well because I had one.
2: Sure. So, I, you know, I am actually not going to dispute many of the complaints that you have about the system of society that we have today. I agree that the Federal Reserve stepping in to prop up asset prices has contributed to many of the ills that you describe. Right? The solution to that, however, is not Bitcoin. And unfortunately, by encouraging many young people in particular to invest their futures in what is ultimately a very dead end technology. And again, that's my assessment. You're entitled to a different one. I would suggest that we've encouraged way too many people to p- take way too concentrated a bet on a very low probability outcome under the idea that they can't stop it. They absolutely will stop it. And the ramifications, I think Grant did a very good job of eloquently describing it.
0: Well, gentlemen, listen, I seriously, I can't thank you both enough for doing this. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from both of you. Um, and, you know, my, my hope for this when when we agreed to do it was that we could have exactly the kind of debate which we've had, which is, which is testament to both of you. And I hope that when we put this out into... Um, into the wider community, I hope that that both sides of this argument will will do what you've done and listen to the other side and process that information and disagree where you want, but it doesn't turn into just you know, the, the, the the kind of usual ship fight, which I, I just feel is such a counterproductive use of everybody's time and, and intellect because there is some you know there's some remarkable intellectual firepower on both sides of this argument. So hopefully this this um, this discourse will 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 kind of blaze some kind of trail in, in allowing both sides of the argument to, to, to talk to each other with a, you know, the respect that, that you guys have done. So kudos to the pair of you. Before we go, just um, uh, for those in either camp that don't follow the other, just let people know uh, how they can follow you and how they can follow your work and, and where they can find out more. Nick, do you want
1: to go first? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Nick underscore underscore Carter. And uh, if you want to find out about my firm, it's castleisland.vc.
2: And Mr. Green. Uh, Michael Green, I'm confusingly on Twitter as @profplum99, and you can uh, read more about me and my firm at www.logicalfunds.com.
0: Fantastic, gentlemen. Sincerely, thank you both for your time and, and for this uh, this wonderful discussion. I've really, really enjoyed it. You've taught me a lot. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Mike. Thank you both.